who live in the warmer climates have, I guess it's called white fats. I don't know, but it doesn't keep them as warm and stuff like that. So, you know, pride yourself that you are a person of distinction. You have brown fat. And the psalmist does say, all the fat belongs to the Lord. So I'm just bringing more and more every week to the Lord. Just, no, Jesus, I don't know. So wrong. I know, that's like a dad joke for pastors. Um, so, but man, God is good. And, um, you know, this is a year of jubilee. This is a year of restoration. And um, it's amazing to me that spiritually speaking, so put on your spiritual thinkers for a second. In the spirit realm, the parts of this life that are very real, but we can't see it, you must understand there is a battle waging. There's a, it's a waging right now. It's, it's going on, and it, the battle is in full swing, and it is to stop the restoration process. It is to stop your redemption. Anything and everything that Satan and every demonic influence and every evilly inspired earthly influence is doing one grand thing. It wants to disrupt God's restoration process of you and me. That's involved in your marriage. It's the, it's the fight against you thinking better. So if you're struggling with thought lives, it's that fight. And, uh, and in churches, you want to know why there are over, well, 1,400 registered denominations in America? Why? Because of that. Because every so often, someone gets an, gets an in their, you know, crawl. That they, you know, I can do better. So they go and do better until someone else goes and does better. Why is this? Because everything in this demonically inspired junk and all that stuff and in your flesh is fighting against the restoration process. Recognize that. So if you believe that having what God has promised you comes simply because it's in your promise box, you might be Pollyannish. That just means you just, you're taking a very simplistic approach to what God says. God did not promise you an easy road. He promised to be with you while you face those dragons. He didn't promise you a road without scars. He said, I'm going to heal you, but leave your scars. That's called your testimony. And, you know, there is so much that um, comes against us in this Christian life. It's almost like the fight begins once you say amen and you surrender your life to the Lord. That's when all hell goes. That's another one. Get them. And at the forefront of this are leaders in ministry. Um, I remember back when I was in Bible school and I thought I knew everything about church leadership uh, because I, you know, well, I did. I really did. I was smart. And, uh, um, and I really thought that I had all of the keys to church growth, to leadership, to uh, a spiritual anointing and power, and the keys to the very next revival. I mean, I thought all of that. And I could see very clearly every single flaw in the college leadership, in my church's leadership, and also in my other co-leader in my youth group. He was over the senior high. I was over the junior high. Because I was too special for the senior high, evidently. So I had to, you know, limit my efforts to junior high. I'm trying to give you an understanding that I really had an overinflated sense of self. I just did. And, uh, but what I remember very clearly is when I finally said yes to 
a call where I was the man in charge, that's where I realized everything changed. That's when I realized that I was in the crosshairs of the enemy. And the enemy sometimes was a deacon, an elder, sometimes was the prayer leader, sometimes was my own family, sometimes was just a regular kid in the church. You know, it's amazing to me how that happens. And it's all done in the church, I'm speaking, in the name of this is what the Bible says, this is what the Spirit says. This is what... That's just evil. Hopefully you understand that is one aspect of it. Now, thankfully, not everyone in this room is in fivefold ministry yet. But I'll tell you, you will fill the fight on your battlefront. That fight might come from your own flesh and your own pride. The minute the devil gets a little bit of bait in your flesh and in your thinking, and he might take something and he might inflate it, put a magnifying glass on it, and then you're going to bed at night, that's what you're thinking about. You get up in the morning, that's what you're thinking about. And instead of your mind being at rest and at peace because you're focused on the Lord, you have nothing but focus on what the enemy is trying to get you to focus on. It's just like the teenager who looks in the mirror and says, all I see is an ugly pimple right on my nose. But in reality, they're a beautiful kid. Nobody else notices that pimple. But they are so infatuated with the one thing. And why does that happen? Well, in our lives often, it's just that battle that's being raged. In a marriage, it's simply you never leave the toilet seat down. And that grows to another thing, to another thing, to another thing, till finally you're sitting down with the kids and you're saying, Mom and I just can't work it out, kids. We're better apart. What? Why? Because of this battle that is raging. In this context, I felt the Holy Spirit using a bunch of different things in my personal life and in church life and, and different things to highlight something on this road of restoration. And at first, when I began to feel this, I felt like going to Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you're you know, familiar with the Old Testament, this was in the time of restoring the people of God back to their rightful place in Jerusalem with the temple and all the things that go along with that. And in that time of Ezra and Nehemiah's restoration and rebuilding of the temple, they fought some adversaries, Sanballat and Tobiah. And I mean, so there's some there's some adversaries that were there at the process so much so that they had to build with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, in, in essence, you maybe need to talk about what is it like for each and every one of us to walk this road of restoration, but have a sword in one hand while you still maintain building in the other. You've got to do both, don't you? And as I thought more and more on it, I really felt like the Holy Spirit was highlighting something else. I've been reading a book called Mission Drift, and it has nothing to do with a lot of the things that I've been pouring my heart into in ministry recently, but it was just a book. Every now and then I just have books that have nothing to do with what I'm focused on. It's kind of my happy place. I get to go think on something else. And as I'm reading this book on mission drift, and now I'm praying about this message today, it was like the Holy Spirit said, Ben, you've got to come back to the basics of what it is visible church is called to and what you're called to, and you need to proclaim that to the church. And I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to do that. And here's the reason why. I believe every single individual can lose sight of their purpose 
lose sight of where they're going and what they're called to do in life. And easily, I believe if an individual can do that, I believe an organization can do that. If any organization ran by men can do that, you definitely better include the churches that we've organized. How do I know this? Well, back in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the Catholic Church uh, addressed a need that was in their uh, communities. The need was simply the people were so poor they couldn't afford to keep food on their tables. So then the Catholic Church, the Franciscan monks specifically, said, we know what we need to do. We need to give money to poor families. They need, we need to come up with a process where they can have small week-to-week loans so that they don't feel like they're getting usury and they're not being taken advantage of. We need to lo- lend them some money so they can get whatever they need for that week to put food on their tables so they can survive this dark time. So they came up with this process. I'm not going to attempt to say it in Latin, but it's beautiful. It just basically means money for the poor. And, uh, and this process was beautiful. It was the precursor for our modern day, like uh, food banks, where poor individuals can come and they can, in essence, make an exchange for the things that they need, the commodities that they need for that week, and then they get through this. This was beautiful. In fact, this grew so much that in Europe, they had these little food banks all over where they were giving money out and they were making sure that individual families could attend to their needs. Man, the Pope at that time, released an edict and and gave some parameters and said, this is a God-ordained thing. And it was basically sanctioning it and telling the church how to continue in this and grow it. Well, that was, you know, from the 1300s and to the 1500s and all that area right there, that was really growing. You know what? That continued to this day. Do you know what it's called today, though? Pawn shop. The pawn shop started from the Franciscan monks. It started as a small loan so that you wouldn't be taken advantage of and you wouldn't have any judgment and you could have everything that you need. But somewhere along the line, they lost their main purpose for why they were created and it began to get corrupt. And little bit by little bit, over 100 years, 200 years, to three. now all of a sudden, pawn shops do not represent philanthropic, you know, food banks anymore. They're more like loan sharks. They're more like they're taking advantage of the down and out and the poor, and they're, and they're just using their hard luck to make money. How in the world did it go from a Franciscan monk's mind of let's help the poor to what a current pawn shop looks like? Well, that's a real big one. Let's talk about a smaller uh, example. Um, I want you to hear this mission statement. And uh, sounds like a really good church, I, I believe it. It says this, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and all of your studies is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. How many agree with that? I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think, man, that is beautiful. This was the main mission statement of a beautiful university founded in 1636. This university was an exclusively Christian university. This university emphasized character formation in all of its students above all else, and it rooted every one of its policies, its practices in this staunchly Christian worldview. It actually became the bastion of Christian academics and distinction in America. But 80 years after it started, a group of New England ministers saw that there was compromise. And they said, we no longer believe that Harvard 
is a Christian organization. And so they said, we need to start another organization. So they got together and they had a, a very wonderful donor, Elihu Yale, and then they founded Yale. And when they founded Yale, they said, this is not just about truth. It's about truth in our lives and in the church. And they, they I mean, truth and light. And I mean, they are really, <laughs> I just love that. Not just Veritas, it's light and truth. They hoped to be different than Harvard. They really did. But if we are looking today at Harvard and Yale and a lot of the Ivy League, they don't resemble at all their original mission and their founding. They really don't. In fact, at the 350-year anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Mueller, that former president, John Hopkins University, he did not mince words. He said this about Harvard. He said, Harvard, the bad news is it is a university that has become godless. If we doubt that, Larry Summers, the president of Harvard during that time, said this. He confirmed Mueller's assessment. He acknowledged it, and this was his quote. He says, things that are divine have neither been central or central to my professional or personal life. So things divine have never been central to my personal or professional life. That is a far cry from the motto to know Jesus and to make him known. Wow. Wow. Individuals make up Harvard, Yale. Individuals make up things like pawn shops. Individuals make up things like the YMCA that was the Young Men's Christians Association, which no longer looks like a Young Men's Christian Association. It's just a cool place to work out. And uh, all of that is very important. And it brings me to Galatians 5.7, because I believe there is something in Galatians 5.7, Philippians 2.16, that backs up this idea that we need to look very clearly at things that could knock us off course on what we're called to be and what we're called to do. Every one of us could take that and apply it personally. What are you called to do? What are you called to be? But then don't, don't save it. Apply it to a church. Apply it to a community. It goes on and... I really do believe what Revelations 2, 4, and 5 says to the church in Ephesus. You need to go back and do the things that you did at the very beginning. You need to get back to your roots of what you're called and designed to do. Redemption is, restoration is God taking you back to His design, His plans for your life and him bringing back his good purposes to your life, no matter what the enemy has done to steal it or to confuse or to rob. I don't know about you, but that's a great process, but it's going to take a fight. And the fight isn't against flesh and blood. It really is a spiritual fight. Can you turn to somebody real quick that's close to you that you like, that you don't mind talking to, and just tell them honestly, hey, you're not my enemy. Would you tell them that? Just tell them, you're not my enemy. I love you. Now, the nice thing is, is if you're saying that to somebody that you like, like I, I like Jeff over there. Jeff, you're not my enemy. Um, but Steve, um, no, Steve's not my enemy either. You know, here's the thing. It's easy to say that to somebody that you like right now. You need to be able to say that to your enemies. You need to be able to turn to your enemy and say, you know what? 
You are not really my enemy. And my fight isn't actually with you. My fight is against this evil yuck that's in spiritual realms that is trying to destroy God's purposes of restoration and redemption in your life. And so you've got to stop fighting the person and stop fighting the spiritual realm. And how you do that is you come back to focus on the basics and what your purpose is. You don't try harder to defeat someone. You focus more on Jesus. You focus more on your calling. Oh, this is good stuff. You know, it's funny when uh, submarines go low to fight, don't they? Airplanes go high to fight. Infantry, hand and fist. God has called us to raise up higher like eagles or to get down low in humility and let him bomb the enemy. None of this person-to-person fight stuff is ever going to achieve God's purposes in your life. Your marriage will not be restored just because you're more righter than her. And your church is never going to look better just because you're more smarter than me. Your, your city is not going to look better just because you riot or protest more. I mean, this is so good. It, if we go to our knees and start praying, if we go just fighting the spirit, I think it's so much better. Oh, man. I really do see that God is challenging us right now to look very clearly at why was the visible church started. I really wish today wasn't a snow day in one sense. That everybody that thinks this could be their home church would be here today to hear this message. I don't know if everybody's going to watch it online or not, but I do think we've got to remind ourselves why we ever became the visible church. Why was there needed another church? There's a lot of good churches in town. I've got a lot of good buddies that are here now in Green Bay. I could go to any one of their churches. I like them all. So why in the world did God want us to start another church? So I came back to some of the roots. And when my wife and I were praying, I remember long times in my garage, in that smelly garage, praying. I'd put a rug out there because in our little little, uh, uh, duplex, there was really no easy place to go and pray. So I just used it in the garage. I just prayed in the garage. That's where real work is done anyway, man. And uh, so I was in there and there's just something good about laying on the ground and crying to the Lord and getting up and you have grease on your face. It's just good. And uh, so, so, but I I remember praying and just asking the Lord and he began to uh, put these little things that would stir up an inspiration, something that gets you going, oh God, I want to see that. And some of this key scriptures, this was one of the first ones that popped in my head. Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians 3.10 began to just marinate in my soul. And it says this, that God's intent was that now through the church. Now through the church. And this is definitely a collective thing. So just do me a favor and throw the poopy doctrine of you're the church and stop talking just about that. It's the called out ones together. Yes, it's true. You are the church as an individual all by yourself. But no one person can accomplish the purposes of God. That is an idea straight out of the pit of hell that says you as an eyeball can run around without the body and be effective. 
Nuh-uh. A heart needs a rib cage, eyeball needs a head, and you need an actual church with a real church walls, with a real address, all that stuff. Everybody who doesn't agree with that isn't agreeing with, it's not me, they're not agreeing with God's purposes. So as a young person, please defend the truth that Jesus died for a church. He went to synagogue every weekend. Young people should be going to church too. Old people should be going to church too. And so I look at this and I think, okay, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. That doesn't mean just the evil demonic realm. That also includes the angelic realm. You must understand that it's through the church body, the plan of redemption is unfolded. The angels long to look into God's intentions and purposes about redemption. They couldn't understand it. They are unredeemed souls. They are created spiritual beings. They don't know redemption. They look to you and to me to see what redemption looks like. And in the Old Testament, they saw all these pictures and they were probably looking at it going, wow, this is amazing. They had no idea. And it was in this moment that the apostles are saying, look at how God is working all of time together to unfold in a way where he's illustrating to the angelic realm. This is what redemptive purposes look like. Wow. That's still going on right now. So in, in this church, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm going, God, we are the visible church because I believe that through this church, you want to display some multi-layered wisdom to both the angelic realm and to the human realm that's watching. And what in the world does this mean? When you look at this unique word, manifold wisdom, this is a beautiful word and it is a very strong uh, use of this word, and it really means to show off Christ with boundless varieties and richness. I'm, I'm crafting that sentence in such a way so that you understand what I'm emphasizing in that truth. It's to show off Christ with boundless variety and richness. Man, I bet you that's really what Peter was Referencing in 1 Peter 1.12 when he said even the highest powers, those angelic beings long to look into this dispensation of grace that we're in. So I believe that in that little garage, the Lord was saying, Ben, I've sent you to Green Bay so that you could be a pastor of a group of people that want to show me off in Green Bay that want to show off multiple layers of my richness and who I am. I sat there and I'm sitting, I'm, today I'm sitting here thinking, man, this is a boundless God that we serve. And right coupled with this was the one scripture that's on our wall in there, Galatians 5, 6, where it says that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision matter, but instead this is what is valuable in God's economy. It's this faith in that redemptive process, but it's expressing itself through love. This is important. It's a redemptive process that we're going to show off as a church, but it must be done in love. And love is not what the Beatles sang about. It's what Paul wrote about, which is hate what is evil, cling to what is good, fight the good fight. It is not loving to ignore sin. It is loving to confront sin, but you've got to confront it lovingly. 
There's so much about love we have distorted, misinterpreted, and then blamed God for it. And we think that we know better than God. That is so wrong. Church is not set up in your design or my design. It's set up the way God wants to do it. And he wants to show off his way of redeeming people. (sighs) Is it a fight? Yes, it is. It is a crazy fight. When you have to block someone who refuses to get over their drunken past and they live like either a dry drunk or a wet drunk, or I don't even know what the right word is, but they're manipulative and they're abusive and they lie and they cheat and they try and distort and divide a church and then the pastor's blocking somebody. How often do I have to block someone on my phone? I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? And as you do this, you're going, man, is this a pastory thing to do to block someone on my phone? Yes, it is. In right circumstances, you bet it is. Just as right as if you're supposed to do what the Bible tells us in the New Testament. If someone was divisive or evil or they have these weird usurping ideas, you're supposed to confront that publicly so that the whole church understands what shame over sin is like. I have never once confronted any one of your sins from the pulpit publicly. Have I addressed sins that step on your toes? Yes, but here's the thing. They're common to all mankind. So whenever you hear me address a sin and you walk away going, pastor's just picking on my sin. Stop thinking you're so special. I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on everyone. All of us sin and all of us have a common understanding of what this sin or that sin. There's only a few things we talk about in scripture and they pertain to all of us. And, uh, and so it's amazing how the Spirit of God can bring that barbed arrow of conviction right to your heart, and then we can easily dismiss it. Well, that's just Pastor Ben picking on me. Stop that. And so in church, there are times where I almost feel, uh, Bill and Sarah probably know this, <laughs> Petraean knows this, and other pastors and even overseers know this, and people in full-time ministry understand this. There are times you want to confront sin publicly, but because of timidity and fear and so much abuse in the church world, you don't. And so it's better to suffer a church split. It's better to be misunderstood, to be judged harshly, to be called charismatically, not charismatic. Quenching the spirit when you're watering the spirit. Teaching the saints, but not teaching the saints. Until someone just says, I've got a better place to go. And you do that over and over. But here's the thing. The enemy can use that very dynamic to discourage pastors in the pulpit. And I'll tell you, some of the things that I'm here for Why I'm here is to reset Green Bay because like we just read in Galatians 5, 6, don't get lost in what I'm saying, guys. Focus. Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter. I am so sick and tired of the culture that was created prior to my arrival in Green Bay. Every charismatic church in Green Bay that I had a chance to talk to, every single one of them was started from a church split. Every single one of them. Life Church, Bay City, every one of them. And you know what? There's a lot of stigma and shame that comes from this culture. And don't think that the Catholic Church is any better or the Lutherans are any better or any other denomination is better. They all have their problems. And I look at that and I think this is so evil. But here's, here's a beautiful affirmation of the Spirit. Last Sunday... 
I'm standing on the pulpit with Jared Bryant, who took the church that I couldn't continue serving in, and we're standing on the same stage proclaiming the gospel truth and talking about God and supporting one another. And here's the thing. I, I appreciate that, but here you got to see what God is doing. Dan Slater from Shell Lake gets a word and he comes to me and he says, Ben, Jared don't even know what God is doing right now. I've got to tell you this. The Holy Spirit said that you were sent here to break that spirit of division in Green Bay. And, and he said, and... He used you, and then when Jared came, he used Jared, and he says, I'm telling you right now, the Holy Spirit impressed upon me that in the spirit realm, that enemy, just like in the Old Testament, where that prince of Persia resisted and resisted and resisted until it was defeated, he said, I saw that breaking in the spirit. That spirit's broken, and he said, and now churches all over this region are going to see the benefits of that fight and no one will know who fought it and why Praise God. and I sit there and I go Lord this is one of those reasons why I'm here and I'll tell you I am not the best pastor in town I'm not the best pastor in town it's sweet if you say that but that doesn't really nudge me one way or the other I'll tell you this I'm not a quitter and I'm tenacious like a bulldog. And when God tells me to do something, I will do it. Even if I do it wrong, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it like David did it. I'll do it like crazy, but I'll do it with my whole heart. And I think God needed that kind of a guy to come to this place and tell a religious, stuffy crowd of churches to get over themselves and start loving one another. At first, I thought God was just mean to me. I really did. But then I come back and he says, no, the manifold wisdom has got to be on display through the church. And he says to me, Ben, you have got to teach a group of people that your religious expression is stupid if it's not filtered through love first. If you ever wondered why I have almost two brains about charismatic culture, how some days I almost say, stop doing this. And other days I go, come on, let's press in. I'll tell you the reason why. is because in this culture, I've had to address our over-religious, zealous insanity. I've had to address it. It has burned so many families and destroyed so many people. And so I couldn't take it anymore. So I will attack the overused mantras and platitudes and crazy things that people use. And they put their Christian stamp on it. They'll call it deliverance. They'll call it charismatic stuff. They'll do all that. And I look at it and I go, but you're broke. Your marriage is broke. You're miserable. You keep bouncing around from church to church. You can't hold a job down. I think your faith is broken. Would you stop blaming God for everything that you're doing, please? And then, but you're not spiritual enough. So I have been fighting a fight for how long? 10 years? 10 years now about this? And I am seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I see that this is about to break open. And this last couple weeks, all hell's been coming at us as a church. Last week, hardly anybody gives. Why? Because we're at a different location. This week, I don't know if anybody's going to give. I never take offerings. <laughs> you know, I never plead like that. But you know what? We've got to put money right where our mouth is and our heart is. We've got to pour into what God is going to do. We've got to volunteer. We've got to find our fit. We've got to work hard. And here's what I'm seeing. Don't get discouraged fighting the battle. I'm not. 
Don't get distracted. You're not fighting each other. You're fighting spiritual things. Stay the course. You will reap a benefit. If this is your church, you will see that God is doing things. And it is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. He's doing something in this city. And that's worth it. Man, I, I'm sorry. Now I'm just preaching. I need to actually stay on this for a second. I believe when faith matters, if it's expressing itself through love, what, what is important is this. When I say that the visible church needed to be started because God needed to show off his manifold wisdom and faith had to be illustrated, your faith has got to make a difference. It really does have to make a difference. I think um, you and I both could probably talk about this point. Aren't you tired of people who profess a love and a commitment to the Lord and yet they struggle so much? They're at the verge of throwing away their commitments to the Lord all the time. And I just want people to be sold out and unmoved. I, I don't want double-minded Christians. I want single-minded, focused Christians. Now, I pray the more we get those single-minded, focused Christians, it'll inspire those that are wavering to be focused on Christ and stop giving in to emotions and into this other stuff or to their flesh and just stay focused and stay the course. But boy, we need a group of people that stay focused like that. And um, it's got to make a difference in our lives. I believe there are two things I want to highlight before we close today. We've got about 15 minutes and, now, and we do have enough time, I believe. And then we're going to take some uh, communion together. The two things is this. I want you to hear not just those scriptures about what the Lord birthed the visible church from in my prayer time, but you need to know this. You need to know what God says about my role as a pastor. It does not matter what a denominational background has told you what pastors do. It really matters what the Lord says a pastor is supposed to do. I mean, it's one thing to have an AG model, another thing to have a four-square model. That's the church that I worked at prior to coming to um, Wisconsin. Um, it's another thing to have a Lutheran model, a, a Catholic model, or all those things, but don't we need to go back to Scripture and say, Lord, what are you restoring to the church? And so here's some things, and you might need to take real quick notes or just go back to the podcast and get this because I don't have time to go through each of these, but I'm going to throw out the address to each of these, and I'll tell you. The Lord has given me one very clear mandate as pastor over the visible church. This is my job. This is not your job. This is my job. Come on, preach back to me and tell me this is your job. Just say that. Say, now say, it's not my job. job. Whose job is it? This is it. And the joy of this is I will give an account for this. Everybody just go, whoo. That means you're off. You don't have to worry about this, okay? In Acts 20, 28, it says this. Be very careful. Keep watch. Pay careful attention. Special focus over yourself and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Who put me in this church? The Holy Spirit did. God did. God did. Trish, you didn't put me in this church. If you put me in this church, you could kick me out this church. God put me in this church. I didn't even put me in this church. I tried to put me in another church. I really did. I called back California. I said, San Jose, you got a theater there. I am called to be in San Jose. Yes, send me. And he goes, 
nope. <laughs> and I was like, ah, doggone. Yeah, Texas, dad, you're down there. I'll plant a church in College Station. We flew down there, landed. No, the Holy Spirit said, no. <laughs> and you know it's the Holy Spirit when your own papa says, it's not God. Dad, it is God. We'll fake it this time, okay? He's like, no, it's not God. It, it's, it, and we come back up here, and we're like, this is where God is saying yes. Wow. So who put me here? Him. And when he's done with me, he'll take me out. If that's when he takes me home, that's his disposition. He, he can do that. And so I'm supposed to, in the meantime, keep watch over this church. And I'm supposed to keep watch over myself. I'm supposed to be an under shepherd of this church. You're not the shepherd of this church. I'm the shepherd of this church. There are helpers. We have elders that are under shepherds working with me when we're in chorus and meeting. They're a part of that panel. These shepherds together, this is God's church. He's bought it with his own blood. Acts tells us that. And someday I'm going to see Jesus face to face and he'll say, Ben, did you tolerate that sin in the church? And if I say yes, he'll say, that wasn't what I wanted. He'll say, Ben, did you preach the truth even though no one liked it? No, I, sometimes I changed it a little because I didn't want to lose that big donor. He'll say, that's not what I asked you to do. And there are times in church when I have to shepherd people and they don't want to be shepherded. And you know what? That's okay. If I'm not your pastor, you will not like me. You will find another place that will either do what you want them to do or you'll at least like them. But you know, if you're here at the visible church, you've got to be okay with the culture here. I wish it was different for you some days, but I is what I is. And that's just the way it is. And uh, so the list of things that God has told me, it's a short list, but I want you to know these are different facets of what God has told me to do. And it's straight from Scripture. Isaiah 58.1 says this, you are supposed to confront, cry aloud, don't hold back. 1 Timothy 5.20, cry aloud, don't hold back again. I'm just saying this, confront, cry aloud. That's what prophets, that's what pastors do. We're supposed to intercede and be watchmen. Isaiah 62, 6, 7, and 8. We're supposed to give ourselves no rest from this job as a watchman. You do not know how many times I take these walks up and down these gravel paths praying for us. Praying for you. Praying for your marriage. Praying for your attitude to change. Praying for your thoughts to get higher than your own navel. You know, I mean, there's so much that a pastor has to do in praying for you. That's my job. Now, don't misinterpret why I'm telling you this. I don't want extra cookies this week from you. Pastor, thank you so much for praying. I don't need it. I really don't need it. But you need to understand church is God's design, and there's multiple layers to it. And, and sometimes we don't talk about this. You don't talk about this in a big mega church all the time. Why? Because you never get close enough to the situations that rub you the wrong way for this stuff to be preached. Why? You just sign up to what feels good. You listen to what you like. And when you don't, you change and you go to the next buffet. You know, that's what you do. In a smaller church, we're close enough where I can irritate you. And so you got to hear this kind of stuff. So I intercede. And then here's another thing. This is the one I don't like. Be a sign, a public display, almost like God's clown. He just parades you in front of everybody. 
This is a weird position to be in a church position. Ezekiel 4, 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. Prophetically speaking, pastors are a, a reflection of what God is speaking and doing. And every dispensation or season of God working, he has unique pastors that he sets into the positions or those roles that are what the people need for that time. And it's crazy, but how many has watched the story of Lonnie Frisbee? They needed a Lonnie Frisbee in that Jesus Revolution era. Why? Because Lonnie Frisbee spoke a language and looked a certain way. He was not like Chuck. He had a whole different view about him. But you know what? A Lonnie Frisbee didn't have the depth in teaching to keep a church straight and narrow for the long haul. So there's so many seasonal benefits for leadership. And in a pastoral role, you must understand certain pastors are created for certain things. Um, my dad's mentor and overseer, uh, Jim Salvador, powerful man of God. Talk about a man of faith and dramatic healings. My own grandfather, powerful man of God with dramatic healings and all kinds of stuff. I saw him. You would not, none of us in this room would have liked them as a pastor. Why? A different era, a different time, a different boldness. We love the idea that a Smith Wigglesworth could be our pastor, don't we? Until he was your pastor. Until the day he drop kicks your infant across the stage. Until the day he punches you in the gut and your cancer falls out. I mean, we all imagine a different type of pastor than the one God gives you. You must realize that in Ephesians, pastors and fivefold ministry are God's gift to you. If you don't like the gift, go to the giver and say, hey, can we get an exchange? <laughs> but God in his wisdom knows exactly what weaknesses you need to experience in a pastor that will help shape you according to his purposes and designs. Amen. Now, we'll get to that when it comes to your calling. We have uh, 10 more minutes. So here it goes on. It says we're to be assigned publicly. Um, we're supposed to disciple and teach. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. We're supposed to preach the gospel message, the salvation message. You're saved by faith in God's grace. And we preach that here at the Visible Church. Um, and there's a lot of scripture on that. The whole gospel news. I love that. Uh, Acts 5.20. I love that. Um, I'm supposed to be devoted in prayer. Acts 6.4. I'm supposed to teach sound doctrine. Um, some of you, it's amazing, but uh, everybody wants to teach something, right? Everybody wants a free license to have a home group or something. And you know what? You could do whatever you want to do. But if it's going to be something the Visible Church puts their stamp of approval on, I will have discussions with you about your ideas and your thoughts and where they come from. And I might even question your doctrine. I'll say, where is that in Scripture? Who told you that? Why do you believe that? And that matters because I've got to teach sound doctrine. So it's, I know, thank you, Michelle. And, uh, and Titus 1.9 tells me that. Uh, Titus 2.1, um, or not Titus. Um, know the Bible and remind people of sound teaching. 2 Timothy 2.14 and 15. That's good, isn't it? Um, and then here's the other thing. I'm supposed to stir up gifts and keep using them. Whoa. Man, Romans 12.6, gifts. I love that. 2 Timothy 1.6, gifts. Um, this is an important part. Um, you know, back when I was 
took my first senior pastor leading, I had a, a wonderful professor in college. He was, a, he was an adjunct professor, so that meant he just only came in maybe one time out of the year, taught one class, and then he was disappeared and on the mission field and stuff. And, uh, and he came and he encouraged me after hearing me preach a couple times, and it was on these gifts. He said, he said Ben, stop being other people. Would you just use the gifts God given you? And I was like, but, but what if those aren't the gifts that people like? And he goes, why are you even talking to me about this? Use the gifts God put in you. Stop trying to put on someone else's gifts. Oh, all right. And I thought I understood what he meant, but it took me five years at that first church to just understand I still didn't get it. And I'm, I'm telling you this. There are times where I have to do certain things in order to stir the gifts up in me. So if you go, well, why does Pastor Ben just do the preacher walk like uh, Sherry does? Sometimes Sherry's got the preacher walk wherever Sherry's at. And, uh, and why when we worship? Why does Pastor Ben have to be on the worship team and worship sometimes? I'll tell you why. I'm just like the Old Testament prophet that says, bring the psalmist. I need some music. I ain't in the mood yet to preach or to prophesy. And, and why? It's stirring up the gifts. So there are times where I have said at this church, I want music on before church starts. Why do I do that? Because if I don't do that, I'm distracted. And when I say, crank up the music because I don't want to hear Sister So-and-So sing off key. Why do I say that? Because I don't want to be distracted in worship. There are so many things. And now, is that wrong? Is that preference? Yes, it is preference. Is there anything spiritual in Scripture about, well, Pastor Ben, don't do that? No, I have the freedom to say, what do we need to do here so that I'm not distracted? And when you come and sit in these seats, I can preach the best message that you need to hear at this moment. Well, there's times I need to kind of cultivate the atmosphere. All right, are you guys with me so far? You understand it? And, um, and that is nothing weird or wrong. That is just the way it is. You do the same thing at Thanksgiving at your house. Crank on that old crooner music. I'm not in the mood to eat turkey yet. And you get to light candles and do whatever you want. At this church, I can crank music up, turn it down low, have Amy sing 50 songs if I want. Why? Because I need to stir up the gifts. Trey, I've never preached this message before, have I? How am I doing? Good. Good. All right. Here's the other thing. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. This is the last one I'm going to talk about me, and then I'm going to talk about you. Everybody go, uh-oh. <laughs> so, okay, this is, this is uh-oh. Um, this one is to be an example to the flock. Okay, this is so funny. Um, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Be an example in faith, in sound doctrine, and in life. These three areas. In faith, in sound doctrine, and in life. I am not supposed to be the example of the philanthropic businessman. I'm not supposed to be the example of the best, like, counselor something. I'm not. There's, there's a, basically, what I need to say is this. A pastor, whether you're at this church or someone else's church, don't give them the example that they need to be. Let the Lord define that example. And you're not the Lord. I'm not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. And he uses that individual and puts him in that place for such a time so that even if they are an Eli, remember the example that Eli was. He was blind and he overlooked the sin of his children. And yet God put him in that role for a very specific purpose to teach a young prophet how to hear the voice of the Lord. He failed at every other job, fell over when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, broke his neck, and died. 
And for the entire record of Israel's history, his life is an example of what God's truth is. So a pastor can be an example on all kinds of levels of what to do, what not to do. And you will see things in me that you are not supposed to ever do. Okay? Some of you shouldn't be like me on many levels. Don't feel impressed that you have to be like me. It wouldn't work for you. Um, it, bar- it barely works for me. And uh, so, um, but then there's other examples that God uses as a pastor that you need to see. And they will be in these areas of faith and in doctrine and in life. I'll tell you this, and I'm, this is not me boasting in a way, in a proud sense. I'm just, I, I'm just highlighting the focus. I'll tell you, in my strengths and in my weaknesses in my marriage, you would do great to be around me and my wife. Why? She loves me. And you need to see what that looks like. If you have a bad marriage, you need to be around some marriage where a wife loves the husband in a very God-honoring way. And you know what? When I'm doing right, I love her in a God-honoring way. When I'm doing wrong, I don't do good in that area. But you can see that stuff. And I invite you to see that stuff. Why? Some marriages in this area need that. Petraea and I are honest when we talk. And we don't give up. And you know what? If she tries to leave me, I'm just chasing her. So you need that tenacity in this day and age. And, uh, and I love the way she loves me. It's amazing. But we need that kind of an example. When it comes to doctrine, here's what you have seen in my life, hopefully. I'm a person that when I mess up, I say I mess up. And you know what? It hurts like the dickens when I have to say I mess up. But you know what? You need to know, and I thank you. Some of you say, Pastor, you know what I like about this? You are not mincing words when you say you screw up in this way or that way. And then you talk about the faith and you talk about that. You know what? You... All kinds of churches out there, all kinds of pastors out there. You got the one crazy guy who actually tell you all of his dirty laundry. I'll open up my closet and tell you everything that's in the closet. Petraea will say, shut the door. Please shut the door. Don't tell anybody. I'm like, I'm sorry. They already saw the closet. You know, and why? Because even in my weaknesses, you might get a lesson through that that will help you in your faith. That is a blessing. Now, in my faith, I'll tell you something. I am not a person that is smart, but I am a person that is convinced that Jesus loved me, that Jesus died for me, and that includes every one of his promises and benefits. And I will not accept someone else's example of faith. I will live that example of faith that I have. I am tenacious with what God says. I will hold on to his promises. But if you tell me I got to pray a certain way, or I've got to do a certain thing, or accept a certain teaching just because it's popular in this world, and that's faith, I'll tell you you're stupid. Why? Because I don't believe that. So I will not do some of the popular fad things because someone else says that's faith. That's not my example I'm following. What you'll get from me is you'll get a kind of a nitty gritty crazy uh, jazz player preacher. Where I'll just say, this is where we're going. We're going to do that. We're going to go crazy in this direction. And if you're cool with that, you'll roll with that. If you're not, you'll go, man, this is crazy. I don't know if I can be on this crazy chain. But I'll tell you what you'll see on that process. Ask Petraea this because she's been with me for a long time. You will see miracles. You will see God's provision. You will see breakthrough in your life. I've seen God do it so many times I can't even keep a track record anymore. Some of you in the effort to look for the miraculous, you will reject the form that God is bringing into your life because you didn't expect it to come in that package. 
And God wants to give you, restore to you miracle power. And if you reject the vehicle in which God is bringing it into your life, you will miss out on what God wants to restore to you. You've got to open up your mind and say, God, use even the Eli's, use the Saul's, use the David's, use anybody in my life so that you can teach me to be stronger and more faith oriented and live a life that is bold. That is where good preaching starts. That's where good pastoring starts. But you know what? The challenge in America is we don't want that. We want what itching ears want and we want what we want. So what is it going to look like in America? Churches will probably struggle. They may not get over 500 if they're like that. Why? Because we just don't have the backbone anymore for that kind of stuff. But you know, I see this coming. There is a whole new generation of people, younger people, Gen Yers and younger, they are so pragmatic. They want to, they want to see, it's like the old commercial from my generation. Where's the beef? They want to see the beef. They're like, show me it. I want to see the, I want to see the reality. And, and when they begin to taste the reality or the fruit of that kind of faith and living, they're going to say, I like that. I want more of that. And they will see the difference. This is just religious posturing or this is just empty stuff. No, they want depth. That's real. And we're done. We didn't get to go to you yet. <laughs> Some of you are like, thank God. I barely got through you just talking about yourself. Um, I want you to know, um, in closing, we're going we're gonna to bring the psalmist back up. We're going to stir up the gifts. Come on, we're going to stir the gifts up. Um, I sure appreciate Amy. You know, Amy helped out a lot with Fusion Fire behind the scenes. She helped carry that load, and uh, she didn't complain or whine. And I think she only had a nervous breakdown once, um, <laughs> twice, three times. Okay, so three times. There's only a couple breakdowns like that. And, uh, and, you know, but you can't do church without people like Amy, and uh, especially the way I do church. So. That one was for free. That was just for free. <laughs> so, and, uh, and uh, you know, as we're going to prepare for communion, I'm going um, to dismiss you to come and grab the communion elements. And as we do it, we're going to take communion in a unique way today. So um, we're going to take communion and we're going to talk about our shared values. Sometimes we over-spiritualize communion in some ways and we miss some of the practical applications. We're not supposed to take communion if we're not unified. It was the night that the Lord was betrayed that he pointed out the one who is deceiving and betraying me is also dipping his bread in the cup. What's the significance of that? It's at the very night he institutes what unifies. It's one of those things that unifies is the body of Christ. He highlights that there was dissension even in his own ranks and Judas betrayed Jesus. But no matter what the enemy wanted to do to disrupt what God was building in that merry band of crazy people, um, it backfired. And that was the very tool that God used to bring redemption, Judas's betrayal. When we take communion, we're actually celebrating our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. And so there is, a, there is a, a confrontation that must happen sometimes with communion. 
If we take communion, but we have animosity and hatred towards one another, we should not take communion. You need to say, hey, God, help me. You may not have time to go and make restitution with that person. Say you wronged them in some way. You may not have time to do it. But between you and the Lord, you better lay that fight down and repent of it. Why? Didn't you hear me at the beginning? I said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against these spiritual things that are right. But sometimes we can't get past the fleshy stuff. And that's not unified. In church here, we have three important values. Spirit-filled. What in the world does that mean? We don't want to hinder the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't want anyone in this room to be an Aiken in AI, if you know my reference. That means I don't want you to be harboring sin in your life and not dealing with it and thereby causing consequences to the church because of your own personal sin that you refuse to deal with. That hinders churches. That's why in the early church it was so important that Ananias and Sapphira were judged publicly for their sin. Why? God was saying, you're going to take communion. I want clean houses. Deal with your junk. So when we take communion, we've got to be willing to say, if there's anything that's hindering the flow of the Holy Spirit in our life, Lord, I've got to confess that before you. Bring it out into light and say, God, forgive me. If it's sin in your own heart, if it's something you're doing, you need to confess it as wrong. If it's something else that's going on, you need to just say, Lord Jesus, in this moment, I'm going to make this right. And you begin to clean that out. It doesn't have to take long. Why? First John tells us, just confess it. He's faithful and just. He's going to wash it all. He's going to clean it all out. But you want to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. The other thing is, you know, when it comes to Spirit-filled, this is a unique church. I love the Holy Spirit. But you've got to trust me and I've got to trust you. And so there's a progression in being filled with the Holy Spirit as a group. I need to trust your ear to the Holy Spirit. This is why sometimes in a church, I might tell someone to sit down and say, don't share that right now. You could share that with me afterwards and we'll test that word together. That's why sometimes I give a Trisha microphone and say, hey, if somebody has a word, have them at least come through you. Why do I have these hoops? It's not because I don't like the Holy Spirit. I want to test and prove if you have a character that is in submission to authority in this house. If you can't submit to the authority in this house, you have no right to speak for the Lord in this house. If you don't love me, you can't speak to this group of people. You don't have to accept all my differences and all my weaknesses, but you better love me. Why? You, if you want access to influence this church, you got to love Bill, me, Sarah, Petraea, Amy. You got to love the leadership of this house. If some of you are thinking, why in the world has Pastor been saying all this stuff? Because I know what you said. No, no, I don't know. I don't know anything. I'm not pointing anything out. I'm teaching you stuff from Scripture that doesn't get taught in most churches. You need to hear this. Why? Because you set the bar. You're setting the bar right now in Green Bay for more spirit-filled environments. You've got to you got to know this culture because when all heaven breaks out, you've got to be trusted with what God is bringing. If I don't trust your ear to hear the voice of the Lord, then I will not let you have that influence.
even Paul the apostle had to go back and say, guys, am I right? And they said, yeah, you're good. And he's like, all right, I'm good. You've got to be willing to submit and work together. And I think the Holy Spirit can flow in mighty ways. And we love the Holy Spirit here. If you don't, I pray you get more of the Holy Spirit and you love it more. Oh, man. The other thing is relationally driven. What in the world? <laughs> relationally driven. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't care how talented or smart or all that kind of stuff, right? I don't really care about that stuff. Um, I used to care about that. But God freed me from myself and God freed me from other people's talents and abilities too. And he put the emphasis on the relationship. And so I really value relationship over performance. How does that affect you? Well, have you noticed that our church is still about 120 to 140 people? You know why it is? Because we're not perfect. Because Pastor Ben didn't hire the perfect people. I hired me, Petraea, all of us, and we're all imperfect. And so we're going to do things weird and wrong and mess it up and get it wrong in all different kinds of ways. And I'm okay with that. The reason I'm okay with that is because I love these people and I will tolerate any of the mess as long as I can because the mess is worth it because of the people. So don't take this wrong. Trish and I have been working side by side for how many years now doing prayer ministry? And I've messed up stuff in her life. She's messed up stuff in my life. And you know what? I love Trisha. She's, I have an actual sister named Trisha, but Trisha is my sister in the Lord. She's closer to me in many ways than my own biological sister. And part of the reason is, is because I can take her and her husband. We can go to Texas or Tejas and, uh, and we can enjoy each other and just have fun and love the Lord. And you know what? I'm not perfect and neither are they, but it's okay. I believe that relationship is important more than my performance or your performance. You do not have to be perfect in my world to be my friend. You don't have to be perfect in my world to be in this church. And you know what? You don't have to be perfect to be in heaven either. And so in this church, I pray that you focus more on relationship and what affects that more than anything else. I don't care if you're right if you aren't in good relationship with someone. There are many marriages that end because someone feels they're more right. Churches are split because someone feels they're more right. There is so much damage done in this world because people don't put relationship first. They put right first. I don't care if I'm wrong or right as long as those relationships are growing and healthy. That's tough. That's my value. That's a value in this church. The other thing is community-minded. Now, that sounds like a philanthropic statement. Like, let's go do wonderful things and give to the poor and the needy, all that kind of stuff. Here's what it really means. It is not about me, and it is not about you. And so at the end of the day, there's an element of this church that goes counterintuitive to what is comfortable to you as an individual. <laughs> I wish it was different on some days, but it's just the way it is. It is there is so much about what God is doing in the visible church that forces people to stop thinking about their own kids, their own family, their own needs, and start thinking about the greater group, the church, and then the community. It is challenging because in this culture, it is all about our family, 
our kitchen table. No one does anything, it seems, in this community unless it involves their children and what they want to do. So sports for their kids is huge. It's, a go- it's like a God uh, activity. Huge. Um, you can't do church if it interferes with my fishing agenda or my sport agenda or any of that. My vacation agenda, all that kind of stuff. And you know what? This church is built almost counterproductive to that. We will attack that self-governing culture of home. You've heard me in church say, your kids are not the most important thing in your world. They shouldn't be. Now, does that sound evil? Maybe to some people, but it really is a healthy realignment of priorities. God comes first, really does. And then your lifelong responsibilities. If you're married, it's to your spouse. I ain't even got to your kids yet. And then your kids is a part of a small community that at times is in a greater sphere of community and other times it's in that small sphere of community. So in this greater community, there will be times when my kids were little, I've had to tell my kids to sit down and shut up because they were hurting the greater community. In this culture, that's a major faux pas. Because if the pastor confronts a child and that's a sacred cow in that family, Pastor, you're not supposed to touch that child. You're not supposed to, you know, critique that child. They'll leave. That day will be their very last day. Why? Because somebody said no to my child. Oh, my gosh. You know what that does to the community? It destroys the inspiration in a church. We have a culture here where it's like, you know what? If you're here and I see something wrong in your kid, I should be able as a pastor say, hey, that attitude stinks. You need to change that attitude. And is that wrong? Well, not for here. Might be wrong somewhere else. And if there's a children's pastor, they need to be able to talk to your kid and do that. And you can't get offended and go, oh, how dare you talk to my child like that? I'm out of here. <laughs> Stuff like that. I say that because we've lost families the first time that I've ever confronted a kid. I was shocked when I thought, because they, anyway. So we're going to take communion, but here's what I'm asking. I just shared three values. Spirit-filled, relationally driven, and community-minded. I'd like you to stand with me today. You're not under any pressure to take communion. This is between you and the Lord. We're going to sing. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to take communion. We're pretty much done. I'm holding you even longer, but I just feel we have to say this stuff while the iron is hot. You know what I mean? (laughs) So go ahead and come and grab the communion elements. And as we sing, I want you to just reflect on stuff. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you in this message? I don't know what he's speaking to you. I really don't. But I I bet you the Holy Spirit is saying something to you today. If you're at all sensitive to the words of the Lord, there's something that God is saying that you need to deal with. You just need to deal with it. The reason is because God wants to bless you this year. He really does. He wants to restore things in your marriage. He wants to restore things in your home. Man, He wants to do things in this city. But boy, it takes unity. And that's what this communion celebrates. Unity. I'm going to pray this scripture. 
In Philippians 2.2, it says, Make my joy complete, being like-minded in your doctrine, having the same practical love, and having one purpose and spirit. Make my joy complete by being like-minded in your doctrine. Love has to be the same in practical ways and being one in spirit and in purpose. That's attitude and, and design. We've got to be one in that. Why? Because I believe God is restoring good things to people. Oh man, I believe God is going to break open the heavens and pour out blessings that we can't contain. Oh my goodness. But we've got to fight together. You're not my enemy. I'm not your enemy. There needs to be some unity in the house. There needs to be some breakthrough in the church. I tell you, we are going to be ambassadors of a whole new wave of revival, but we cannot let Satan and his scheming bring division or discord in the church in any way. We've got a love greater than any misunderstandings. We've got a love more than any hurts. We really do have got, we have got to do that more and more. And I'll tell you, God is going to pour out a blessing that we can't contain. That's what the psalmist prophesied. When there's unity in the spirit, God's blessing is going to be poured out in a way we couldn't even measure. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Man. Praise you, God. Praise you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, your son. Lord Jesus, you came to this earth, you took on flesh, you died on that cross. You shed your blood for the sins of the world. You were dead, buried and raised to life again on the third day. And your resurrection life is what we're celebrating right now. Lord, in the same way that you are one with the Father and the Spirit, we want to be one with you. We want to be one in the faith. We want to be one in the way that we love. We want to love like you love. And Lord, we want to have the same purposes that you have for us. Lord Jesus, as we take this communion today, would you unite our hearts in purpose? Would you unite our hearts in love? And would you unite our hearts in the Spirit? Holy Spirit, cleanse us right now from all junk that defiles mind and body and attitude. Holy Spirit, come and cleanse us. Open up the floodgates, Lord, for a revival that we couldn't even describe if we wanted to today. Lord, break open and break through in our families and in our community. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, this moment we celebrate your amazing grace like a blanket that's over us that co covers over a multitude of wrongs. Lord, at this moment, we'll take this bread and this juice. Your body was beaten and bruised for our iniquities. It was whipped. You took stripes on your back for our healing. And Lord, your blood was shed for our sins that we would be cleansed whiter than snow. And we stand in unity in this. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's take communion together, church.
And let's sing this song. It's like, oh, how I love you, Jesus, right? now and I'm going to dismiss you but if you want to take some extended time we're going to turn this second service time slot into just some worship and intercession we may take 15 minutes we may take 20 minutes I don't know but I just feel like we need to take some time I'm going to take some time I just want to worship and invite the Holy Spirit to move in a fresh way um, you have no obligation to stay you got things to do you got to go but man Let's just press in. If you want to do that with me, you can do that. Let's just worship.